Father, we're here this morning with a great desire to hear from you. Father, as we sang and we celebrated the fact that in the midst of whatever the circumstances, it is well with our soul. God, that is only possible because of the power of your spirit that lives within us. Father, as we call back to Israel and in the wilderness and the fact that you poured water out of a rock to provide for a deep thirst. You provided manna for the deep hunger. Father, you provide what it is that we need. And we are so grateful for that. So God, wherever we may be this morning in our daily grind of life, in the circumstances that we're facing, in the relational challenges that we may be dealing with, in the financial tensions that we're feeling, God, may we rest in the confidence that you know, that you care, and that you're in it. Father, may we come to have a greater confidence, a greater security, And Father, may that confidence and security drive us to be even more curious as to how and why our world is as it is and why people operate the way that they do. And in that curiosity, may we become compassionate and invite others to experience what you have offered us so that they too may find their footing, find their security. God, may we live as people of hope, not desperate and frantic but confident and secure and deeply humble because you have provided what you have. Thank you for your grace, Father. In the precious name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Let's get started here. I, I've come to really appreciate rearview mirrors. Um, now, it's interesting because rearview mirrors are kind of losing a little bit of their luster because many of us, if you've been, bought a car in the last few years, most of us have those cameras, Right? And cameras are far superior to this, but these are still important to us to to see what's going on behind us, to maybe see what we've just passed, to get a look back and and make sense out of kind of what we may hear behind us. There's a lot of things that rearview mirrors are really helpful to offer us. But you know what they're not helpful to do? They're not helpful to tell us where we're going. Because if I spend my time driving, looking out the rearview mirror, that I'm not looking out the windshield. Windshield is a far better way to operate a vehicle. It also doesn't tell me what's going on around me because side to side, I look out the two side windows and I can see what's actually happening on either side of me. And I can look out the windshield to tell me what's going on in front of me, but I can only look out. The only thing I see when I look out this is to tell me what's behind me. In a very real sense, that's the conversation we're going to have about emotions over the next six weeks. Because in a very real sense, emotions could be defined this way. My interpretation, my beliefs, my thinking related to everything that has happened already to me. And how I've chose to interpret those things and how I'm choosing to process those things helps to identify for me what the emotions are. And that's why when we deal with anxiety in a few weeks, we'll talk about how do we interpret the past and how does the gospel shape those kinds of emotions. What about fear and anger? What about deep sadness? 
Again, when we spend our lives looking out the rearview mirror, obsessing about the past and everything that's happened, we lose an opportunity to see what's actually happening around us and to see what's coming towards us, which is the way that life has to be lived. Otherwise, we will be held captive by our emotions. In fact, I would say it this way. Emotions are one of the most misunderstood, mismanaged, misattributed, meaning that they get blamed for more things, exploited, undervalue, overprioritized entities on the planet. That indeed, emotions are both over undervalued and overprioritized. Which means they end up getting surrendered to because we do one of two things to emotions. We either grew up in a family or, or adopt certain a, a system of thought around emotions that tell us they're not relevant, they're not important, just ignore them and keep moving. Who cares about emotions? In fact, some of us have grown up in homes where we're told you shouldn't feel that way. Or who cares how you feel? Just get the job done. Emotions are irrelevant. Do your job. Many of us grew up in those environments. And some of us grew up in environments watching our parents and watching those around us allow emotions to define their reality for them. Allowing emotions to tell them what's true and what they should do because this is the way I feel, so this is what I must do. See, emotions are in both directions mishandled. They're undervalued, but they're also overprioritized. And so we're going to grapple with this, and I think it's important that we do because in some ways, within the church and within specifically within the conservative evangelical church, we don't talk about this very much. We don't talk about it very well, more importantly. In fact, I love theologian Sam Williams said it this way, emotions are rarely addressed in Christian settings, and when they are Personal opinion, cultural prejudices, and pop psychology are the dominant voices or influences. We don't talk about it. And when we do talk about it, pop psychology, positive psychology, cultural biases, and everybody's own personal opinion, which, by the way, not all opinions are created equal. We'll come back to that. The problem is, Within a lot of Christian settings, here's kind of the tag that gets used, right? Here's the way we talk about it. Emotions shouldn't be viewed as good or bad. They're an automatic or an involuntary response to people's circumstances in the world around us. Anybody heard anything like that? Emotions are amoral, right? They shouldn't be viewed as good or bad. They're just an involuntary reaction to people or circumstances or things around us. Emotions are amoral. Are they? Are we, are we sure about that? It, scripture kind of deals with this a little differently. So scripture says it this way. First of all, Emily, it is so good to see you. We are so, is Aria home yet? She's home? Very cool. Very, what's that? She'll be home today. Very cool. Awesome. Praise God. She's been in NICU for the last couple of days. So excited. It's good to see you. <laughs> Scripture says it this way. Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious about anything. Now, we can talk about what that means because there's a difference between being afraid and being fearful. Right? There's a difference in that. But he says, don't be anxious about anything. 
John says it this way, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. Which means this, by the way, love does not equal love. Not all love is created equal. That tag that we throw out there, love is love. No, it's not. John says, no, it's not. In fact, there are certain things and certain ways of operating that you should not love. And if you do love, the love of the Father is not in you. Love is not love. I know that's hard for us. But not all love is the same. Jesus says it this way, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. I'm just angry. Just let me be. Anybody who is angry is subject to judgment. You must not covet or be jealous of your neighbors. And there's lots of stuff there. So, so this idea that emotions are amoral and we should just have them. Now, here's the deal. We'll talk about this in a minute. You need to identify the emotions because you need to deal with the emotions so that you can process the emotions so that you're not controlled by the emotions. Right? So that's, that's part of the deal, which means you need to be honest about them. But not all emotions are something we can just say, well, I feel it. And as long as I don't act on it a certain way or as long as I just whatever, it's not moral. And the reality is, Scripture's kind of going, actually, there is some morality to this. We need to deal with that. Theologian Sam Williams goes on in his statement. It says, when emotions are addressed, personal opinion, cultural prejudices, and pop psychology are the dominant voices, he goes on. Even worse, these voices are rarely questioned or justified with biblical warrant. We seem to function as if Scripture is silent on these matters. And the truth is, Scripture has a lot to say about this issue. So here's, um, I'm going to give you kind of the, the summary statement for the entire series. I'd love to have you here every week. Also, you're going to tune me out in a few minutes, I'm sure. So let me at least give you the summary so we can all be on the same page, right? So here we go. God created emotions as messengers intended to inform and influence, not as messages meant to define or determine reality for us. God created emotions as messengers to tell us something. There's something going on inside of me. What is it? How do I need to respond to it? It's a messenger coming to me and telling me something. It's not the message, meaning it's not the thing that's ultimately defining truth or reality for me, but it is a messenger that I need to pay attention to. And here's what many of us do. Many of us take the messenger and go, oh yeah, you're now telling me everything that's true about what I needed to know. That my emotions define reality for me. Or we kill the messenger. We just go, uh-uh, I'm not dealing with that. I don't care what I'm feeling right now. I'm just going to do what I need to do. And we don't pay attention to the fact that the reality is that my emotions are telling me something about my interpretation of what I've been through and what I've experienced. And I need to figure out what that emotion is and why I'm experiencing it because my body's reacting physiologically to something. David Benner says it this way, Scripture not only speaks about emotions, it also speaks to and through our emotions. The Bible itself is emotional literature filled with emotional expression and designed not just to communicate with our rationality, right? I grew up with that. All Scripture was is this rational, logical argument for these specific things. And the truth is, as you engage Scripture meaningfully, I don't know, there's an entire 150, 150 Psalms written to kind of tell us emotions matter. Designed not to just communicate with our rationality, but also to stir us emotionally, thus affirming 
our emotionality because we are image bearers of an emotional God. Where the theologian says it this way, the abundance of scriptural evidence of God's expression of emotion and a more positive understanding of their nature lead to the conclusion that the true and living God is, among other things, a genuinely emotional being. It is also one of the very things that sets the Christian God apart from every other religious system. Because we have an emotional God who reacts to things. And oftentimes we say it this way, if we want to understand God, we need to look at Jesus. Because Jesus showcased for us who God really is. And it's been estimated in the Gospels. Theologians have estimated in the Gospels, as we see the life of Jesus lay out, we're told this, that Jesus showcases 39 distinctly identifiable emotions. Now, guys, a lot of us didn't even know that 39 emotions existed. Your wives did. Your wives do. We've got like five or six, right? We've got mad angry, rage, (laughs) excitement, and if we're really honest, sad, but we usually kind of ignore that one or deny that one. But think about the life of Christ for a minute. So 39 different emotions. He's looking over Jerusalem as he's about to enter Jerusalem. He's going to be crucified, and we see him weeping, sorrowful, grieving. We see him encountering religious leaders over and over again, who are imposing unnecessary rules on people and prioritizing those rules over the people, and he's angry, and he's frustrated, and he's speaking as though he is. He sends out the 72 to go do ministry, and they come back, and he's debriefing with them, and we see joy and celebration as he processes it through with them. His friend Lazarus dies, and he's at the graveside. He's sad, and then he's bellowing with anger. He's raging at death. And in the garden before he goes to the cross, he's discouraged. He's got incredible angst. He's lonely. He has agony. And he cries out to the Father and says, please don't take this cup from me. And you know what happens in the garden for Jesus? God never responds. He never enters into that except that he sends an angel to empower Jesus. He doesn't actually give him a response. He just sends an angel to empower him. Which means that Jesus lost connection with his father so that we never had to, by the way. One of my favorite things about the Gospels, and I I was was working through this, and I kind of came through a whole bunch of different things, and I was like, all right, I'm just going to give this one statement. Do you know that in the Gospels, approximately 40 times we're told that Jesus saw someone? I know I can't say that with an L. I apologize. He saw someone. And when you look at the language on he saw someone, you know what it says? It means not that just he noticed cognitively, but when it says that he saw someone over 40 times, we're told that he took notice of them, he stopped, paid attention to them, he took note of their circumstances and their emotional state. That Jesus, over 40 times in the Gospels, took note of the emotional state of someone that he was interacting with. And yet, we're not sure that emotions are important See, it's through our emotions that we respond to our experiences. It's through our emotions that we express our feelings. Some emotions are beneficial and necessary. Other emotions are toxic. Toxic emotions need to be acknowledged and responded to swiftly without giving them room to breathe in their lives. Here's the, I say this, one of, my, one of my daily declarations is that shame and entitlement are two emotions 
that I have been set free from and that I cannot give room to breathe in my life. Shame and entitlement are two emotions that I am prone to, that I've been set free from because of Christ, and I cannot give them room to breathe because as soon as I give them room to breathe, I'm down that rabbit hole as deep as I can go. Shame and entitlement are two emotions that I just have to wrestle with every day of my life. And they're toxic, and they're not, oh yeah, that's just how I feel, you should let me be. No, they'll destroy me if I give them room. We must recognize that it is through our emotions that we showcase or display our thoughts, our beliefs, our attitudes, our desires, and our opinions. Our emotions demonstrate how we interpret life and life circumstances. Our emotions demonstrate how we interpret life and why we're reacting to things the way that we are and the circumstances of life, which is why some people can go through a tragic experience and have an incredible amount of faith that has grown through that because we see God's providence and his work and his presence in the midst of that. And some of us go through the exact same thing and say, where's God? And I don't care anymore. And God never showed up for me. All that you're telling me is how you're choosing to interpret your past experiences. And again, my heart breaks for you, and I want to enter into that with you, but what I really want to do is say, can we identify where God showed up in the midst of that? And how he has brought you through all of that. Now, this is free, and then we'll get into this. This is just free, and maybe this is just me feeling like I need to give you something that I want you to hold on to, but let me just give you a framework for how we need to deal with emotions for a moment, and then we're going to jump into envy, which is our first emotion we're going to cover. How do you work through emotions? First of all, you've got to identify the emotion. You've got to identify that something's going on, right? You've got to identify there's something inside of me. It's stirring in me. I need to identify it. Man, I'm unsettled. I'm frustrated. There's something going on. I just don't feel like myself. Can I identify that reality? Then I need to label it. I need to give language to it. I need to identify what is that emotion? And here's the problem. Sometimes we can't figure it out, so we might need help. People, some some will say, I hate counselors. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. But sometimes the best thing that counselors do is just give us language for what's going on inside of us because we can't figure it ourselves by by our own. I've sat with men and women in my life that I deeply respect expressing what's going on and asking them to help me identify what's really going on inside of me. And asking for them to give me the language, give me the label to identify what the emotion is. Then I got to evaluate it. Where is that emotion coming from? What have been my thoughts, my processes? What's going on behind me? This will get me in trouble, but I'll say it because it's true, right? Hormones don't create emotions. Hormones intensify the emotions that were already there. So no, you don't get to say, I'm just hormonal, men or women. Yes, you can say that because all that that's doing is intensifying the emotion that was already there. It doesn't create them, it just intensifies them, which I can empathize with, but you don't get to opt out. I got to evaluate what's going on, why. Then I got to externalize it, meaning I need to see it as something that I'm dealing with, not something that is defining me. I'm struggling with depression. I'm struggling with anxiety. I'm dealing with some fear. I'm dealing with resentment. I'm dealing with deep grief. It's something I'm dealing with, not something that tells me I'm just a depressed person. I'm just an anxious person. That's not how we're taught to deal with this. Jesus managed and experienced all of those emotions. Hebrews 4 tells us 
that we have a high priest that has gone through what we've gone through. He understands it, and yet he did it without sin. And through the power of the Spirit. So we have to externalize it. It's there, but it's not defining me. Then I've got to process my way through it. Okay, what do I need to do with it? What is the work that I need to do? Or is this joy that I need to hold on to, man? Is this just good stuff that I need to have the opportunity to embrace, which means I either need to release it or I need to embrace it. I need to let go of it as I work through it, oftentimes with somebody else, or do I embrace it because I realize, man, this is good and healthy and the right response. And then I proceed on in freedom. Now, again, I'll get in trouble for this, but let's go. Ready? One of my, one of my the phrases I hear a lot is, women are just more emotional than men. Women are just more emotional than men. Okay. Look at this list for a second. How good are women at identifying, labeling, evaluating their emotions? And how good are they compared to men? If I can't identify, label, and evaluate my emotions, then by definition, I'm going to be held captive by them and I'm going to be driven by them. And if women oftentimes, not always, but if women oftentimes have a more innate ability to identify, label, and evaluate their emotions, by definition, they can process their emotions, which means they can release their emotions, which means they're less driven by them than men are. You can scream at me later. But stop, because guys, we oftentimes just suppress, 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 and then it comes out sideways. Because here's the emotion that all men are okay with. Here's the emotion, anger. We're good with anger. What we're not willing to do is go, okay, that anger is driven by what? Hurt, fear, guilt. Can we deal with that? No, 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 no. I'm, I'm just angry. Because I can blame somebody else for that. All right, I'm going to move on because I'm going to get in more trouble, but let's go. So here's the series. The series is how does the gospel or how should the gospel shape our emotional world? How does the gospel shape our emotional world? So let's deal with envy for a couple minutes. Let's just make a few observations about envy. Envy are feelings of dissatisfaction due to comparing what others have to what we possess. Do you know what the greatest way to destroy your joy is? compare what you have to somebody else. I've had people in my life that they got the dream job. They're so excited because they're making $70,000 a year and they're like, this is awesome. And then they find out somebody else got hired in at $80,000 a year and now they're miserable. Because why? I'm just comparing what I have to somebody else. A sense of disappointment that comes from focusing on what we lack. By definition, not on what we have or we've been given. Bearing a grudge towards someone due to coveting what that person has or enjoys. Envy is not jealousy. So jealousy has got to do with people. It's got to do with something. I want something. I want a relationship that somebody else has. There's a lot of jealousy conversation. We're not dealing with jealousy. We're dealing with envy. And envy is insidious. It's ugly. Uh, there's a couple of quotes by some really good authors that I appreciate. Even Let's start with Thomas Aquinas. He says this about envy. He says, just think for a moment about how squarely malicious envy is based on this definition. In fact, just as pride is the opposite of humility, envy can be thought of as the opposite of love. Love says, I'm happy when you're happy and I'm sad when you're sad. Envy says, I'm happy when you're sad and I'm sad when you're happy. Could anything be more terrible? Oh, Nate, I don't deal with envy. Okay. 
you've ever had, somebody in your life that you felt like was succeeding and they were getting it right too easily and everything was coming too easily and then you hear that now they're struggling and you went, oh, I feel better about myself now. Come on, it's not just me. You get the phone call from the family member that's struggling with something who's had it really easy for a while and you're like, oh, it's about stinking time. That's envy. Dude, it's ugly. It's ugly. I love Gavin Ortland says it this way. Most sins have an upfront sweetness, but a bitter aftertaste. George Carlin said it's addiction is where you go from a little bit of pain and a whole lot of pleasure to a whole lot of pain and a little bit of pleasure. Like there's something about sin. If it, sin wasn't sweet, we wouldn't do it, right? Except that envy is a little bit different than that. He says, most sins have an upfront sweetness, but a bitter aftertaste. Envy, meanwhile, is bitter as you do it and bitter afterward, doubly miserable. Envy is one of the most miserable vices. Most other vices tend to produce some kind of pleasure, however momentary. But envy is nothing but unpleasant through and through. It is a constant thief of joy. Man. And yet we struggle with it. Because we compare, we compare, we compare, we compare. Blake Gossam, another author, said it this way. Envy is a sibling of hatred. Whereas covetedness is an inordinate longing for what someone else has, envy goes further. Wanting the other person to lose what he has. Wherever envy exists, hatred also resides and misery follows. Wherever envy is present, hatred also resides and misery follows. Man, that's a, that's a dark reality for us. And yet we live in a culture where comparison is so normal. And we compare ourselves all the time. And we compare ourselves so that we can either feel better about ourselves. Or we compare ourselves so that we can identify what it is that we're missing out on. And we just find ourselves in this constant comparison trap. Gavin Ortland goes on in his writing, he says this, there is no joy in your life that cannot be destroyed by envy. No matter what you have, envy can say, yes, you might have X, but you don't have Y. Yeah, you might have gotten into the college, but you didn't get into that one. Yeah, you might be making good money, but you don't have enough time to enjoy it. The ultimate expression of envy came in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were literally in paradise, but envy came along and said, yeah, you might be in paradise, but you're not God. There is no heaven that envy cannot make into a hell. There is no heaven that envy cannot make into a hell. I would say that envy goes even deeper than that. Feelings of dissatisfaction when someone has a setback, or excuse me, feelings of satisfaction when someone has a setback or a loss. And then envy ends up becoming this. Feelings of anger because God could fix it and he doesn't fix it. A belief that somehow God owes me. Envy in my life is ultimately the belief that God owes me something. He's given it to them. Why hasn't he given it to me? Which is why I would say this, and this is hard. This is hard. And I don't mean to be flippant about this, but this is reality for us. At its core, envy isn't directed at a person. It is disappointment or animosity towards God. When I feel envy, it's not ultimately directed at a person. I might have the person as the object to point to. But envy, ultimately, is the belief that somehow God hasn't come through for me. That he owes me. 
that he gave it to this person, and I'm doing this or I'm doing that. Why aren't you doing it for me? Envy is dark. It's ugly. It's insidious. God hasn't taken care of me. The declaration that my God will meet all of your needs according to his riches and glory, and I'm going, no, you haven't, because you haven't done X or Y. See, here's, here's the reality. In Christ, the love that I long for, unconditional love, the acceptance that I desperately want to have, the sense of worth that I want to feel, and the security that I crave, all of them are realized in Christ. And envy is saying, yeah, but that's not enough. That's not enough. You should have. You could have. See, envy and joy, envy and love, envy and gratitude, envy and encouragement cannot coexist. They just can't coexist. So for just a couple of minutes, I just want to make three observations from Scripture about envy. I'm going to ask the praise team to come up here in a few minutes to sing in response to this, but... Let's make three observations about envy. Here's the first one. Proverbs 14, 30. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. We've experienced this, right? When you feel that envy, when you feel that comparison, and man, why is it that this isn't working out for me the way that it is? We can feel how much that physiologically affects us. Emotionally, it affects us. Psychologically, often spiritually, it affects us. I would summarize it this way. A content heart is at peace. Able to receive and give life to others. Envy poisons and rots, toxic to us and those around us. Because you know what it's like to be around an envious person. You know how it feels because they can't celebrate with other people what they've, when they get the wins. And they're constantly comparing themselves. And they constantly want to point out deficiencies in others. Paul, it's, it's striking to me that Paul does it this way. So Paul, in Romans 13, as he's laying out some very clear stuff regarding the, 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 the acts of the flesh, he says it this way in verses 13 to 14. Because we belong to the day, meaning the kingdom of light, we must live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the darkness of wild parties and drunkenness or in sexual promiscuity and immoral living or in quarreling and envy. Notice what he equates envy with. Immoral living, promiscuity, drunkenness. Instead, clothe yourselves with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and don't let yourselves think about ways to indulge your evil desires. Scripture tells us that an appetite by nature is never fully satisfied. The more you feed an appetite, the more it escalates in intensity. Our desires are not managed by trying to completely satisfy them. We try to satiate our desires, thinking that somehow I won't want anymore. And the reality is, Scripture is clear. The more that you indulge in appetite, the bigger it gets. Appetites grow through indulgence, not neglect. So this is that I have a desire, I have a longing, I have these emotions. I just need to express them whatever way I want to. It's interesting because if you go way back in the psychological realm, there's a lot of discussion about you just need to release your anger, right? You just need to get your anger out. Just vent your anger and then you'll feel better. And scripture has been saying for 2,000, actually 3,000 years now, that a fool gives full vent to his anger. You know what they've realized in the last 10 years about anger? If you are somebody who just expresses your anger in whatever way you need to, just gets it out of you, you will become an addict to that anger. So it's not... It's not through just indulgence or expressing it. It's actually 
neglecting it or dealing with it, where I start to manage that in a different kind of way. Just for a moment, look at James 4 with me. I, this is one of the most convicting passages on conflict and how and why we have conflict between others. I've taught on this passage many times, but let me just bring this into this conversation for a moment. James 4, he says this, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? No, it's their fault. That's why we're fighting. And James is going, no, it's actually the stuff that's going on inside of you. You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you do ask God, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. This question of why is it that I struggle? Why is it that I have anger and animosity and envy inside of me? It's because there's things that I want that I'm not getting, and I'm willing to do what is necessary to get those desires met. Because here's what we do. We take desires, which are fine. You have every right to have a desire. Many of them are incredibly natural and appropriate. But we take desires, and then we make them expectations. That I expect now that this is going to be realized. And then what we do over time is we have expectations that go unmet, and so then they become needs. And now we think we can justify whatever we want to to get it met because now it's a need and you don't have a right to withhold that from me. And here's what we've done. We've gone to God and said, I have these desires. And for whatever reason, we're not getting those desires realized. So now it becomes an expectation. And then that expectation gives way eventually to a need. And now all of us would say, if you need to get your needs met, that's why your spouse is whatever. How many times have we justified sin and overt actions that are completely destructive and we've said, well, it's just they need to get their needs met. No, they had desires that they turned into expectations and then they decided to manufacture them as needs and that's when things went completely AWOL. Unmet and unmanaged desires fuel interpersonal conflicts. Unmet and unmanaged desires. When we don't recognize them for what they are and we're not honest about what's going on, they fuel interpersonal conflicts. So we're going to take just a moment because the question that I want us to consider for a few moments, and then I'll get up and close the message, is how should the gospel shape envy? How should the gospel, if we understand it appropriately, how should it shape envy? And the way we're going to talk about it for just a moment is that through the lens of generosity, envy completely transforms.